0: So uh, James, Angus back here, uh, maybe one or two others have some note cards. And so if you want to just raise a question, um, please grab a note card, wave for them for a note card. We'll take these up at the end of today. We may or may not be able to get to all the questions that gets asked over the next couple of weeks, uh, but uh, wave at them, raise your hand if you want a card. And uh, again, we'll, y'all, somebody help me remember to pick those up at the end of the day. And we'll uh, try to address as many of those as possible over the next couple of weeks. Also, I want to note that on the website, if you haven't seen this already yet, there's a, there's a website, uh, a page. If You go to the home screen, media, and then women in leadership. There's a lot of great resources there for you. Josh's sermon series is there. This class series is there, as well as a lot of uh, books, articles, and so forth that we would suggest that you consider in thinking through these matters and on that note, I want to I note that um, something I did last week, you, could not, you can't do in an academic context, and I did in a Sunday school context, but I want to rectify that even in the Sunday school context by saying I didn't acknowledge a lot of sources that I was relying upon. And a lot of those sources are noted on this page for you to consider. And for me, a lot of the things that I'm continuing to kind of work out of are people like N.T. Wright, Uh, my my colleague John Mark Hicks there's a book on there by Beth Barr that a lot of you might find fascinating thinking about the history of uh, patriarchy and history of uh, challenging some of that in the Christian tradition Uh, and there's also a really great little booklet on there by Tom Robinson from uh, Manhattan Church of Christ, is that right? Yeah, Um, that's a very helpful little booklet that you might consider as well. So anyway, those sources are there there's plenty of others If you get through that and you want more, let us know, and we'll we'll find plenty of more sources for you as you want to continue to think about these things. So let's do a quick review from what we did last week. The first place I started last week was encouraging you to consider that with whatever sets of emotions you might come to this context, uh, if you come in here with a a sense of anxiety all the way up to anger, uh, that there is potentially behind those sorts of emotions a very laudable intention. Namely, a desire to do the will of God. Namely, a desire to take Scripture seriously. And if you come with that, even still, a kind of anxiety or maybe even anger, we want to honor that to know that behind that there can be this very laudable purpose and laudable intention. And at the same time, to realize, um, for for myself, um, I I know that when I get into a place of anxiety and anger, I I can have things come out sideways. I can treat people disrespectfully. I can talk in a tone of voice that people don't deserve. Um, I I can think ill intentions of others, or I can interpret their motivations in a way that does not show good faith. I presume ill will. And so I would encourage you that if those are some of your temptations as well, that you try to lean out of those and lean into trusting that we all together are trying to seek the will of God and to do the will of God. Secondly, if you come in with kind of celebration, gratitude behind that as well, can be this beautiful intention that your, your celebration can be a sort of celebration of you thinking this is a right, good step forward in the life of this church and something that honors the will of God and honors Scripture, which, again, very laudable. On the other hand, there can be sometimes, in, for me, in a celebratory sort of mode, I can be insensitive to the feelings of people around me who are not experiencing it that way. I can be insensitive to their stories about what they have grappled with and what they have tried to do. And so if that's part of where you might be, then you might kind of, kind of lean into trying to listen to people who disagree with you and listen to what their stories are and listen to what their fears are as well. So let our emotions then be not something that we shelve, but that we take seriously as a part of life together and then try to find out what sort of information our emotions might be telling us that's helpful and what sort of temptations that we might have in those emotions that might need to be addressed. Second, uh, we spent the most of our time last week talking about uh, two ways of reading Scripture. We talked about the traditional Churches of Christ interpretive approach with a so-called regulative principle as well as the kind of command example and necessary inference was the way that that was kind of played out. So with a regulative principle, you'll remember, is the idea there that what we have in Scripture is a sort of do it this way or... You, that The regular principle says if you look at Scripture, you must find authorization for whatever it is that you do together in the life of the church. And if it does not give you authorization for something, then that you are not given permission to do that. Right? So the regular principle is a sort of exclusionary reading. If it says do this and it doesn't say do this, then you can do this, but you cannot do this. Not only can you do this, you must do this and you must not do this. And so the idea there was that the notion of a faithful, restored New Testament church was go back and find what the New Testament teaches us that it did in the first century, restore those forms through a regulative reading of the New Testament, and thereby you can be a faithful New Testament church. But if you wander outside that, doing things that are not permitted, then you're an unfaithful church. We looked at a number of examples. Weekly communion, as a reminder, there's not a verse in the New Testament that says take communion every Sunday. It's not there. But you can take three verses and string them together from very different contexts and say, well, okay, then this must mean do communion every Sunday. Because it doesn't say do communion any other day, then communion any other day is not permitted. Communion on select Sundays is not permitted. It's only weekly communion on Sundays. If you're gonna be a faithful New Testament church, you do it this way. If you do it this way, you're not a faithful New Testament church. Acapella singing. There's basically one verse in the New Testament. Sing and make melody in your hearts unto the Lord. It says sing. It does not say play. And because it doesn't say play, you can't play. You must only sing. Third an example we looked at, male elders. What does it say in 1 Timothy 3? It says he. It says husband of one wife. Again, starting today and next week, we're going to talk about it. It's more complicated than that, actually. But a sort of face, prima facie reading, surface reading of the text says, it says he, and it says husband of one wife. It doesn't say she. That's clear, right? Well, it is clear at one level. But again, it's a regulative reading of principle, regulative reading of Scripture that leads to the conclusion that you draw on the other side of that reading same thing with weekly gatherings we don't have christmas and easter in the new testament so we don't do christmas and easter in the new testament that may be news to some of you but but in a lot of churches of christ we we wouldn't celebrate christmas and easter because it says you celebrate the resurrection of the lord on the lord's day every sunday same thing every sunday you don't do this traditional christian calendar stuff Now, we talked about strengths of that, is trying to take scripture seriously, is trying to practice unity of all Christians. How can we, instead of being divided according to our denominational creeds or confessions or by our traditions, how can we be one? So laudable intentions and purposes, and we must hold on to those laudable intentions and purposes, Um, but at the same time, some problems, some of the difficulties, meaning that, for example, Stone Campbell movement began as a unity movement. How can we just be Christians? And by 1960, we were three different denominations in the American scene. Moreover, Churches of Christ, one of those three, has had numerous divisions at local levels on all sorts of matters. Um, One of my professors cataloging 75 different issues over which local Churches of Christ had split, including things like one cup in communion or many, and things like whether to have a kitchen in the church building, things like um, like what? Supporting, supporting orphanages out of the church treasury, supporting Christian colleges out of the church treasury. And you, a lot of you have you know your own stories about how this works, right? So then secondly, we talked about a, a, a second sort of way of reading that Josh did in his sermon, uh, pointed to again this morning in his sermon, this sort of narratival approach. in which uh, it's, a, it's an approach in which we ask ourselves, what does it mean to inherit this story that we believe to be true and live out the story. Example I gave last week from my friend John Mark Hicks out of 2 Corinthians 8, that there in Corinthians, he's asking people to take up a collection for the church in Jerusalem, which is suffering under famine, and he doesn't give them a rule. As a matter of fact, he says, I'm not going to give you a commandment. And instead, what he does is he reminds them of who God is and and who Christ was, that Christ though he was rich, became poor for your sake. Now think about that, right? They say, how much do you want us to give? And he says, our God is one revealed in Christ, who though he was rich, became poor for your sake. So what he's inviting them to do is to say, live as if, you believe this story is true. Now, that's an all-encompassing call, isn't it? Rule's a lot easier, right? Give me the rule. I can do the rule, man. And I'm, I'm, I'm good at rule keeping. Some of you would be surprised by that. But <laughs> I'm actually a recovering perfectionist. Um, and so I can do rules, man. Give them to me. But Paul says, Nope, I'm not giving you one of those. I'm giving you a story. And that's going to stay with you every day. And if you let it, it will stay with you every moment of every day. I'm going to give you a second example of this kind of narr- narrative reading related to this question where is the trajectory going? Now, when we ask about the trajectory, what we're asking is how do you follow a story? Right, And think about how this is different than proof texting or pulling a verse out here and pulling a verse out there. So on this next slide, um, Deuteronomy 23, one. i I'm not going to give you the literal reading of this because it's not suitable for work language and it's not suitable for sanctuary uh, gathering. So, yeah, I know some of you are going to go look it up and you should. <laughs> um But it it says, in effect, if I can be allowed to paraphrase it, it says no eunuchs are permitted in the assembly. You know, I always wonder who got, what usher, what deacon got that job to check coming in. You know. (laughs) But you know, it's what it says. You you can't make this stuff up. You're on 231. No eunuchs in the assembly. So hit, hit our next slide Build there, and what you see is it's this clear, you know, it's clear right there. There it is. That's what it says. But if you go to Isaiah 56, there's a prophecy from the prophet that says, there'll come a day in which the eunuch will be welcomed into the people of God, and the eunuch will no longer say, I am just a dry tree. But we'll celebrate being welcomed into the people of God. Now all of a sudden, our trajectory, straight trajectory, goes away. Go ahead and yeah, and now we have a competing point of data in the story. Now, good Church of Christ friends, what's the next verse that pops? in? Anybody got a next verse that pops in your head? Acts, Acts what chapter? Yes, Acts chapter 8. Philip, caught up in the spirit, goes down to a road between Jerusalem and Gaza and sees an Ethiopian eunuch who's on the road reading from what? The book of Isaiah. And he says, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, well, how could I understand except somebody helps me? Now, that's interesting right there. And he says, well, come. And so he gets in the chariot with him and he reads together and discusses it together and they come along to some water and he says well here's water what hinders me from being baptized what hinders me a eunuch from being baptized did anybody get the sermon on eunuchs and Isaiah 56 and Deuteronomy 23 when you did this in the church of Christ world I didn't, I don't know if you did but I didn't and he says nothing hinders you And he goes down and he's baptized and he's welcomed into the people of God. Now look at this next kind of slide, right, the build here. If you look at any one of those verses without looking at the others, you don't get the beauty of the story. You have to have all of those to get the beauty of the story. And taken together, it is a beautiful story. We'll, we'll talk about Philip's daughters here in just a minute. But we'll, we'll, fa- well, we'll fast forward. We'll fast forward and say, but Philip's daughters are prophetesses, right? They're given the gift of the Spirit who are prophetesses. Um, so with this, um, let's go back to the two-way slide here just a second and ask, um, you know, why, why does it matter that we talk about the way we read the Bible. Well, there's a lot of reasons it matters. Uh, one, we can look at kind of the negative consequences of, for example, again, I want to I keep saying there, there are things behind this traditional Church of Christ reading that are highly laudable. But there are also a lot of things about it that have been deeply painful. You have families that have been split. You have kids that feel like they can't talk to their parents. You have people who say, I don't care if you say you're a follower of the Lordship of Christ, you're not a Christian because you don't come to the same conclusion I have come to reading the Bible this way. So you look at it that, that negative way, but here's, a, here's another kind of negative way or a threatening, threatening's not the right word, a sobering point of consideration. In Matthew, Jesus in dealing with his opponents At one point, they're going through a field, and Jesus' disciples pick some grain in the field and start eating grain, popping it in. And his opponents begin to say, what in the world are you doing? You're working on the Sabbath day. And Jesus says um, a number of things, but then in critiquing their critique, he says to them, if you had known what this means, and then he quotes Hosea, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Then Jesus picks up and he says, then you would not have condemned the guiltless. But think about that just a second. What Jesus does there is he said, There are ways through which you read the Bible, and you can read them, you can read scripture through better or worse lenses. And Jesus says to his opponents, if you were to read the accounts of Sabbath through this lens that Hosea teaches us, I desire mercy, not sacrifice if you would read it through that lens, then you would not fall prey to the terribly dangerous task of condemning the guiltless. Isn't that sobering? And so when we talk about how we read the Bible, this is not some snotty academic egghead intellectual exercise of obfuscation. It is reminding us that Jesus says, beware how you read because if you read poorly, you could condemn the guiltless. Act six play, Uh, we talked about. Josh mentioned again in the sermon this morning. Uh, the analogy here, I won't take time to talk about this, but the idea there being that if you get a split thing, right, you know, what, do you, what are you going to do in Act 5, Scene 3 if you don't have the text there? You got the whole story? Go ahead, and there you go. Uh, what do you do? Uh, somebody putting on a putting on a Shakespeare play, well, they would get to Act 5, Scene 3, and they'd improvise, and they'd pick back up with that Act 6. I'll talk about the word improvise in just a second. You can think about the New Testament, the Old Testament New Testament this way, and that we are, we're between that set of scenes between the early church and the triumph of God, what do we do? Do we repeat act five, scene two, repeatedly, doing the early church, what they did in the early church over and over again? Or instead, do we seek in our time and our place to be faithful to the story and live out the story faithfully in our way? Um, this this uh, analogy, both for people who were bothered and, and, for, and for people who liked where we were going, uh, asked really sharp, Questions about this Um, and so let me talk about the word improvise just a second because I think this actually gives us a really good case study to think about culture so uh, I suggested right that the the way of being true to the intentions of Shakespeare would be to faithfully improvise and then laying that metaphor over our own experience in the church I suggested that that's a helpful way of us thinking about how we interpret scripture in our time and our place is that we faithfully improvise in our time in our place and so I heard from, heard from a couple of folks that said, um, you yeah, know, we like all that, but when you said improvise, it made us really uncomfortable. And, um, and then one of those folks went on to say, when I hear the word improvise, I think of comedy improv, New York young person culture that's trying to be cutesy and not take stuff seriously and is not prepared, but just pop up there and see what happens. And I thought, oh, I'm so glad you asked, right? Because when I hear the word improvisation, because I've gotten to be friends with people who are some of the the world-class musicians and have sat with them and watched them do improv, what I know that they are doing is that they train every day, they work every day at their craft, they know the history, they know the music theory, They know their scales, they know various songs, and then when they get something thrown to them, they are so schooled in it all, it's so deeply embedded in them that it is a thing of beauty and wonder to watch them do improvisation. That's what I mean by improvisation. But it's interesting though, isn't it? That this very notion that what a word like improvisation might mean to different people because of our different cultural contexts or our different experiences is precisely the reason that we have to always keep doing the work of reinterpreting and re-speaking and recalibrating how we bear witness to the gospel, precisely because of the changes of culture and changes of language and changes of presuppositions that we encounter. So I was super thankful for that feedback. So faithful improvisation. All right, let me move to some new material and uh, this next question. All of this seems too complicated. Do I really need a PhD to understand scripture? I like that question. Um, And what I'm about to say may be the most controversial thing that I'm going to say today. Here's my answer. Yes and no. So let me explain, on yes. Now when I say yes, I don't mean you need a PhD or necessarily that I need a PhD. What I mean though, is that all of us, and I do mean this literally, all of us are utterly and completely dependent upon Christian scholarship all the time, every day, every time you open your Bible, every time you come to church, every time you read any sort of theology book, we are utterly and completely dependent on Christian scholarship. And I mean that literally. We just are. And I, want, I do want to kind of speak a word of caution that among some well-meaning folks, there creeps in a sort of anti-intellectualism that I suggest is not good for the life of the church and, moreover, is dangerous. Moreover, Jesus teaches us, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You are not more pleasing to God by not taking... Your mind and intellect seriously so we are utterly dependent upon Christian scholarship Moreover, look at this second Peter 316 this is a verse that we all ought to remember this is second Peter talking about he says the beloved Apostle Paul and second Peter says there are some things in Paul's writings that are hard to understand isn't that fascinating that Second Peter says that Paul is hard to understand? Still, some might say, just tell me what the Bible says. That's what I want to know. Tell me what the Bible says. I'm going to answer that question. And again, just bear with me just a minute. I'm not trying to be cutesy. Um, I'm trying to be really serious but it might come off as offensive. So just stick with me just a second. If some people says, tell me what First Timothy 2 and 1 Timothy 3 says, this is what it says. That's what it says. But do the next build. See all this small print at the bottom? That's the work of a lot of scholars. Remember, you don't have the printing press until 500 years ago or so. They don't have a printing press at the time of writing the New Testament, and they copy everything by hand. Since everything gets copied by hand, people make mistakes as they copy. And over time, there creep in what are called variant readings. And what a lot of scholars do is that they catalog all these variant readings and they say, well, this verse actually ends this way or slightly different with this way and so forth and so on with all of these footnotes. We are a part of a living tradition doing our best to take seriously the authority of scripture. We are all dependent upon the work of scholarship. We just are. We need scholars not only to translate, but to provide dictionaries, histories, cultural studies, commentaries, and this is important. Moreover, much of our understanding continues to develop because we continue to learn things about ancient Near Eastern culture and language. And this is also really important. Honest scholars who have given their lives to the study of Scriptures often have honest disagreement. And it is uncharitable at best to equate honest disagreement with not taking the authority of Scripture seriously. Does that make sense? Let me give you a quick example some years ago I invited a friend of mine who's not a Christian Uh, I love this man Um, he's a beautiful human being he's not a Christian he's done a lot of work with people on death row I invited him to come to campus to do a lecture on anti-death penalty work that he's been doing so he came up he did the lecture after the lecture someone raised their hand and they said what do you think about Romans 13 and he said I don't think about Romans 13 He said, that text has no authority in my life. That's someone who's not taking seriously the authority of Scripture. If you have people who argue and talk about particular chapters for years, that's taking the authority of Scripture seriously. You can come to different conclusions, but still believe in the authority of Scripture very, very seriously. The fact that you say, I want to know what this text means, is giving it authority. So now, next, I want to point to, um, as an example of the way in which honest scholars disagree, um, the language here, here's here's one of our big phrases. I'll point to it. One woman, man. This woman who wants to be a bishop, desires a noble task. He should be blah, blah, blah. He should be well thought of and then it says he should be a one woman man. Actually, it doesn't say he should, it says such a one should be a one woman man. Those are the three Greek words, one woman man. So, you know, so what's, what's that phrase mean, one woman man? Well, let me just show you the way people who are much better at this than, than I ever will be have translated it. Quick translations. Husband of one wife, say some, faithful to their spouse, be faithful in marriage, faithful to his wife, must be married to one wife only, married only once. He must not have more than one wife. So those are three words in Greek, and you have people who have given their lives to the study of Greek and study of scripture and study of cultural context, history, and so forth, and they come up with that many different possibilities. And depending upon which one of those you choose, that can have a very different implications for what you take away from those three words, can it? So next, it's even very potentially complicated in application. These are ways that different people have applied those three words. It means if you're gonna be an elder, you must be a man, you must be married, you must have kids. David Lipscomb said, you should be a man who's married, but kids are not required. Some say, That if you become a widower while being an elder, you must step down from being an elder. And other people say, no, that's not right. Some people say marriage is not required. But other people say, well, that doesn't make sense because Paul himself was not married and Jesus was not married. You're going to exclude Jesus and Paul from this role? And others say it means one who is faithful in marriage. So what I'm trying to illustrate here is that from the perspective of just tell me what it says, well... Okay, but that means now what we have to do is have a conversation about it, a study about it, thinking about it. It's not obfuscation. It is trying to be honest about the authority of Scripture. Let me go back to the other slide. you have to have a PhD? No, you don't, which is to say... There is much, nonetheless, even in the midst of all of that that I just pointed to, this super simple, though not simplistic. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Our Lord, crucified, died, was buried, raised on the third day, appeared unto many, ascended to see, sit on the right hand of God, God the Father, whom we anticipate coming again in glory he shall judge the living and the dead we believe we read from the apostles creed this morning the holy catholic church little c catholic church communion of saints forgiveness of sins and so forth there's much that's very clear that's there over and over and over again and beautiful but even still we're grateful for those scholars that have done the work to help us to get all of that now, let's go back to the trajectory piece again and talk about some of the texts at hand. So if we have this sort of, sort of notion of a trajectory, how might we think about key trajectory moments with regard to the question about men and women in mutual service in all of our roles to God? Where do we get that in the story? So let's talk about that a little bit. Next, um, Genesis 2. What you have in the creation story is man and woman created in mutuality. She, Eve is taken from the rib of man, not, not from his foot, not from his head, but created in mutuality to serve. Uh, it's interesting if I remember, I'm pretty sure I'm remembering correctly. I'm kind of um, um, improving myself here just a moment, but I'm pretty sure that um, you don't get, you, you get the more in Genesis 2 you get the generic word for humankind and you don't get the word for man and woman until after the creation of Eve. God creates humankind and then you get man and woman after that particular part of the story. They're created in mutuality. But then in Genesis 3, what you have after the fall, after the so-called fall, is you have the introduction of patriarchy. Then it says man over woman. After the fall. So I think Josh has used the helpful language of we are seeking to be a Genesis 2 church in the midst of a Genesis 3 world. A Genesis 2 church in the midst of a Genesis 3 world. Next you get, um, and obviously I'm I'm passing over lots of stuff in the biblical trajectory, but just with regard to some of our questions that, that we're grappling with. You get, for example, in the prophets, what the prophets anticipate is a cessation of hostility. So you have these beautiful texts about the end of war, the beautiful texts about uh, swords being beaten into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks, and that all of the hostility that marks social relations will be undone with the coming of the kingdom of God. Moreover, you have texts like Joel chapter 2. In Joel chapter 2, the prophet says, in that coming day, what Moses wanted, he doesn't say this part, I'm in- inserting, but if you think back to Moses in the Pentateuch, Moses says at one point, Oh, that all of God's people would be prophets, men and women, sons and daughters. Joel chapter 2 says in that coming day, God's spirit will be poured out on sons and daughters, men and women. So then, keep going forward, you get the ministry of Jesus. And what happens in the ministry of Jesus is that you have Jesus going and encountering working with engaging women in profoundly important ways in Jesus ministry so for example Mary and Martha you know for a long time i thought the Mary and Martha story was just about Martha who's the, who's the 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 woman who's taking care of the household and all that needs to be tended to in the household and Martha's wanting to have her quiet time with Jesus and she's annoyed and she wants her to get in there and to help her with the chores But in fact, one way that's quite compelling to understand that story is that what uh, Mary is doing is she is sitting at the feet of Jesus, which is a way of saying, training to be a rabbi under the rabbi. She's sitting at the feet of Jesus. She's in the circle with the men, training to be a rabbi. And Martha is put out and Jesus says, you will not inhibit her. This is what she's chosen. And I honor what she is doing. Uh, The Tom Robinson book that I alluded to a minute ago, uh, it, it helped me immensely to see a lot of stuff I had been blind to about the integral ways in which women are so deeply involved in the ministry and the work of Jesus. Now, there's one obvious question that stands out here, which is the 12 disciples. Jesus chooses 12 men. If Jesus is really interested in egalitarianism, mutuality, why didn't he choose six men, six women? had a perfect opportunity. Well, here's at least one, one way to think about that. What Jesus is doing is he is working to, in the, in the overarching narrative, reconstitute Israel, and Israel itself is identified with 12 tribes, and those 12 tribes are represented by 12 what? 12 men who are Jews. Jesus selects 12 Jewish men who are not slaves, free. will come back to that in a minute. But along with that, consider the fact that... Um, In the story of Jesus, you get to the end of the story, where have the 12 gone? The 12 men. They fled. Who's still there? The women. Moreover, note this. In in that context, a woman, numerous commentators have noted this, uh, women were not permitted to serve as witnesses in a law court. Somebody could go free, accused of murder, if the only witness was a woman because they were seen as unreliable, too emotional. They weren't allowed to be witnesses. And yet, who are the first witnesses to the resurrection of Christ? It's the women at the tomb. As a matter of fact, the word apostle means one sent, literally. And so that's why in the Catholic tradition, the women, one of the women at the tomb who encounters the angel and goes to the 12 to tell them that Christ is raised is called the apostle to the apostles because she's sent to proclaim the resurrection of Christ. Well, let's keep going forward. Uh, Acts chapter 2. What happened in Acts chapter 2 is precisely what Joel had anticipated in Joel chapter two, the spirit is poured out upon men and women, sons and daughters, people of all, all tribe, all places. Um, Galatians three gets a sort of climactic moment. Because what happens in Galatians is that Paul will now say, uh, I've got four, you know, my timer, I'm, I'm told to go for four more minutes, so I'll, I'll be done in four. Um, What Galatians 3 does is it points to the fact that now in Christ, a terribly important phrase, there is now no longer Jew nor Greek, no male and female, neither bond nor free. Remember the, the thing about the 12 a minute ago? What Paul has said in Galatians 3 is that in Christ all of the divisions, the hierarchies are undone and we are now all one in Christ Jesus. We could keep on going and we'll hit these really quickly. I think Ephesians four is next. Ephesians four is a place that points to Christ having ascended, now in the Spirit pours out gifts on people. And the gifts he pours out are not gendered gifts. They are gifts poured out upon the church of teaching, of prophecy, of being apostles. Uh, the next one up here, Romans chapter 12, very similar. You get a similar list in Romans chapter 12, the gifts poured out. There are no male pronouns in the Greek in Romans chapter 12. It's, these are the gifts poured out to the people of God. Or you get to Romans chapter 16. In Romans chapter 16, you get a list of people that Paul is thanking, depending upon how they get counted, either eight or maybe as many as 10 of the people listed there as leaders in the church in various roles are women that Paul thanks in Romans chapter 16. Um, One quick thing about this that I want to note, in Romans chapter 16, you'll have um, him thanking Andronicus and Junia. Uh, Andronicus and Junia who are foremost among the apostles. So the presumption here is that they are apostles and these are seen as foremost among the apostles. They're not the 12, but they're additional apostles and these are foremost among the apostles, Andronicus and Junia. Um, New RSV. Greet Andronicus and Junia. My relatives who are in prison with me. They're prominent among the apostles. Look at this in tra- translation from NASB, which is 1995. Greet Andronicus and Junius. What they do is they change it, and they uh, apparently the, the translators think, well, we know apostles can't be women, so this can't be Junia. It must be Junius. But in church history. Uh, Junia was known to be a woman, was recognized as a woman apostle without debate until the 13th century. Now, this brings back the kind of cultural question I want to point to just a minute. And that is, a lot of people will ask, and I've heard from one this week, who says, this sounds to me like a sort of kowtowing to a sort of cultural feminism. Um, but I'd like to suggest, let's flip that on its head just a second. Maybe what's happened is that the story and the trajectory of Scripture is so incredibly inviting and liberating and pointing toward mutuality, but because we have cultural traditions of patriarchy, what we've done a lot of times is read that back onto the Bible and then say, well, it's clear what the Bible says. It's worth chewing on, I think, at great length. Well, um, next week, what we'll do is ask um, some other kind of questions that stand in tension with that. We'll ask questions like, well, what about 1 um, Corinthians? Women be silent. What about, First Timothy, what about the notion of male headship in 1 Timothy 2? Because there he uh, appeals to the creation story, and it seems to be saying this is a permanent kind of part of the story, right? So what I laid out to you is saying, you have mutuality in creation and patriarchy in the fall. There are some who will say, well, based upon First Timothy 2, it actually looks like patriarchy is grounded in creation, not the fall. That's a good question. If, it, you know, if it's true, that's worth grappling with. And then we'll talk about this phrase, husband of wife, one wife, out of First Timothy 3. Uh, James, if you could take it, has anybody got question cards or anybody? If you do, raise your hand and we'll get those picked up. I want to end the very same place I ended last week. And that is in Galatians 3. This pointing to neither Jew nor Greek, male or female, bond or free, all are one in Christ. And remind us there that as you follow the trajectory of Galatians, you get to Galatians chapter 5, and Paul is having to deal with the argument over circumcision versus uncircumcision. And he says it's neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, but faith working through love. He transcends the argument and he says don't get bought don't get bogged down in side A versus side B, but to know that the story that we are living in is trying to live out the new creation in which the only thing that matters is faith working out itself in love. Amen. Thank you. Have a good week.